everyone. Welcome to another episode of That's So Kvetch, where we talk about dating, Torah, and everything in between. Today, I'm very excited to have Dr. Batsheva Marcus, who is a certified sex therapist and the clinical director of May's Women's Sexual Health, which is one of the largest centers for women's sexual health in the country. And I know Dr. Batsheva Marcus's work from her Instagram and also from listening to her podcast, Joy of Text, if any of you are familiar and I'm very excited to have you here and very impressed by all her work, especially in the Jewish community. Um, you know, being that that's so fetch is all about talking about things with Jews and dating and sexuality. So thank you so much for joining us, Bashava. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. It's a joy to be here. Yeah. How are you doing today? Well, you know, I don't know when this is gonna air, but it's kind of rainy and gray. I hate rainy and gray. So but yeah. I'm doing pretty well. You know, trying to, mm-hmm. to, you know, focusing on the small things, like it's all about finding the small things that give you pleasure. So yeah. yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, I'd say the same is true for me. I mean, I was telling my friend yesterday, like the sky is not the limit when it's gray, like a little gray out. Like there's only so the limit for how happy you can be is just much lower. Like when it's sunny out and beautiful, you know, it's just much easier to be the joyous person that you want to be. It's so true. Isn't it crazy how the, 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 um, you know, the weather affects us. It is nuts, but I try to like wear bright colors, put on sparkly earrings. That's nice. That helps. Definitely. So, um, I'd love to hear more about kind of like where you were in your life at my age, um, in our twenties, where are you from originally and where'd you grow up? And like, do you remember where your mind was at, at my age? Oh, I do. Um, in my mid twelve, let's say mid twenties. Yeah, yeah. So I was married at age twenty two. Like okay. shockingly, when I think back about that, I'm like, it's like a little crazy to me. I did not grow up in a Haredi world. I grew up in a like classically modern Orthodox world. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and you know, if anybody wants to dig deep into like my like all of the neurotic and not so neurotic, you know ways that I got started thinking about sex and, and Judaism. Um, I did a podcast called preach, um, mm-hmm. which I love. It was a podcast about the messiness of faith and it was only recorded for, I think a year or two It was an NPR podcast. And mm-hmm. uh, I d- dug deep into my history there. So, you know, you can look there, but basically I grew up in a like modern Orthodox community in a, with a modern Orthodox family with a family that never talked about sex. Like everybody assumes, Rebecca, that like, of course, you know, you must have grown up in a very sex positive family, but nothing could be further from the truth. Seriously, we didn't talk about sex at all. And um, as I sort of got interested in sex, as, you know, teenagers are wont to do, I really felt very unprepared. And I think that uh, was a lot of what propelled me um, to, to sort of think about things, all things sexual. And, but I will say about my family, I'll say one sentence is that, um, 
Um, my father started teaching me Kamara when I was like in fifth grade. I had brothers who did not want his daughter to be like behind the boys, you know, like he was very into education, not particularly feminist, would never use that term, but really felt like education was where it's at. And I felt like when I look back, Rebecca, and I think, I think it's once you open up the sources, once you feel comfortable with the sources, it sort of makes you think differently. Like you become a much stronger, much more self-reliant. Um, and it, I think it allowed me to sort of move outside the classic box of um, the way we thought about sex. So that's a kind of a short version of that. I got married young. Um, I went into a totally different field. I was not in this field. I was in, I did a master's in social work, but I was doing community organization um, and loved it and was really happy there and then pivoted um, after trial number three. So, but even when I was working in community organization, I was thinking long and hard about writing a book about mikvah. So you know that I was like thinking this way, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think struggles with my own sex life, but nothing that in retrospect was not like normal struggles, but Right. I'm feeling like nobody talked about this, Rebecca, and um, was thinking, you know, somebody's got to write a book about mikvah and Tarot Mishpacha and how that affects us. And um, and Rebecca Lindsay and I from The Joy of Text are actually working on that book now. It mm-hmm. just, it just, it's, it's taken a backseat because I have a book coming out in March, like a regular, regular person book with, it's you so know, a jet. It is so exciting and it's so much work. So, but that was my next book. So, um, and then like in my, like when I'm trying to think of, so when, the, when she'll have it was my, so 25 years ago. So I was probably about 35, mm-hmm. I'm doing the math, maybe in my early thirties, I pivoted and I went to work with a physician. Um, and I feel like it took me back to my first love. So I went to work with a physician to set up laboratories and then went back and got, you know, another master's in public health and a PhD and got training and opened the center. So that's a long answer, longer than you may have wanted, but short. No, as I, great. Know. It really, I mean, you've had a whole like career journey to share. So I really appreciate it. And, I, you know, I meet often with people who are thinking about a career in, you know, sex education. People reach out often mm-hmm. in sex education or sex therapy. And I Look, I think the world is changing. I do. Um, I think more and more Orthodox women are like learning that they should be focusing on understanding their bodies and pleasure and maybe thinking about this as a career. So I just I think that's amazing. And I think it's great that you're like putting on a podcast for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'm also curious, did you ever like have this interest in, um, you know, sexuality before you were married? Uh, Yeah. I mean, right. Like, so one of the things I talk about, like one of the things that people think is most interesting about me and my history is the fact that I'm like a committed Orthodox Jewish person. And I'm also very active sex therapist person. But I think what makes me more interesting, honestly, is the fact that my work has melded the psychological and the physiological right? Like, believe it or not, until I would say maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, the world of sexual health worked in two silos. It worked on the, you know what? I won't even say it worked. It worked on one silo. It was all about the sex therapy. Like if you had crummy sex, it must be because you had a problem in your relationship or you were blocked or you had too much shame. And, you know, those things are true, but there's huge, huge 
physiological components as well. So it's the birth control pills that we take. It's the hormones that we sort of stumble up against. Um, it's the antidepressants that we're taking. Um, it's the medications we may not be taking that we could be taking. Um, it's the fact that people didn't understand women's vulvas. So, you know, the whole physical piece and how it intersects with the psychological piece is really, if you want to talk about the, the, the dramatic changes I feel like I've made in this world of sexual health, that is kind of it. Um, and so, um, I am like, I'm like laughing because I don't even remember your question. Did you say, did I, oh, was I interested? Oh yes. I know where I was going. I apologize. Um, so i I'm a big believer in hormones. You know, when you see two 17-year-olds who are in line at a movie theater and they cannot keep their hands off each other, or mm -hmm. when you used to be able to see them in non-COVID, you're not thinking, oh my God, they had this must have had this incredibly meaningful conversation, right? You're thinking their hormones are raging. Hormones are very, very potent. We don't we don't give them enough like play. We don't talk about them enough. We don't think about them enough. And so some kids are more interested in sex than others. And I think that's largely due to psychological factors, home environment, shame, but it's also very dependent on people's hormones. And so I would say I was a kid who was very interested in sex and that really helped. Um, I was interested in sex. I was curious about sex. I was curious about boys. Um, I started dating very young. Um, you know, I started fooling around pretty young and, um, and yeah, I think that was a big piece of it. Cool. Okay, great. So did you, I mean, I'm so glad that you're, you're able to kind of like pave the road for people who might be curious about their sexuality, but kind of don't know who to go to about it because like they might want to seek out someone who's Jewish and who understands their background. So I think that's really special that you've created something like that. And in terms of just Judaism in general, you were speaking to the physiological aspects. And I feel like a, one thing that I've realized is as much as we like to say that Judaism is very sex positive, I actually think in some ways it's very sex negative, especially outside of marriage. And there's sort of like contradictory information in Judaism um, that like doesn't allow for people to actually have a healthy sex life. So for example, like, you know, we learn in the Torah that men are not supposed to spill their seed or masturbate. And for some reason, there was nothing written about women. So we've made the assumption that like women are allowed. But then at the same time, we have this like taboo about talking about sexuality. And in a community, when we're trying to refrain from being sexual, how are we supposed to maintain a healthy sexuality like view? So I think that like, there and there's some things like this phrase of men not spilling seed it's always going to be this like wall you know like there's no really way to work around it um and i'm just gonna you know probably keep oh, ranting on about yeah, this no no keep ranting because i think you're 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 speaking to something that is so complicated right like when you move into the world of judaism and sexuality you're gonna hit walls I felt the same way with Orthodox feminism, right? I was very, very active in the Orthodox feminist world for many, many years. And it's sort of the same thing. You hit walls, like you can go so far, but then you hit walls. So, um, so I, but I think what is really important, um, Rebecca to remember is that, you know, there are often sociological issues come up and then religion gets used a little bit as a smokescreen. 
right? Like if somebody's uncomfortable with something, it's much easier to blame it on halacha or religion than it is to just say I'm uncomfortable with something, right? So, um, so w- when you think about this, you know, hashkatat zera, the idea of spilling seed, and mm-hmm. how much ink has been spilled. Sorry to you know mix metaphors there, but how much that. writing has been done about that, and how much emphasis and how much boys and how much guilt boys young boys feel about masturbating when you think about Lashon Hara right speaking evil or talking you know maliciously um then you know why don't we talk about that as much right so you have to start thinking to yourself are some of these halachic problems you know, there are a lot of problems. Like we go through our life, you know, we go through our life and we keep the things we can keep. And there's some things that people are more strict about and some things that people are less strict about. But is the emphasis that is being placed on us or on specific things really reflective of what that halachic value or that Jewish legalistic value is? Or is it really just sort of public discomfort, you know? And, um, and so on the joy of text, which I always joking around about, because, you know, I do that with Rabbi Linzer, Dove Linzer, um, who is one of the most amazing people I know. And he really has the hard job, right? Because I'm a sex therapist and I can tell you, for example, that boys masturbate, right? Like it's healthy and normal and boys need to masturbate, right? And that, you know, the big old joke that 99% of boys masturbate and 1% lie about it. Like mm-hmm. that is reflective of reality. And that when you tell a boy not to masturbate and the boy actually listens to you and stops himself from masturbating, it can produce significantly problematic results as he grows into a man and has wants to have a normal sexual mm-hmm. life. So that's easy for me to say, right? Because I'm not the halachic authority, right? But then you get poor Rabbi Linzer who's standing there somehow having to defend you know, halachic system that says masturbation is not okay. But yes. I think he, and, and we have old episodes. We have an episode on female masturbation. We have an episode on male masturbation. People can tune into that. I think he does an amazing job. Um, so I think one of the approaches is like pretty much what I said, which is you decide what things you can keep and what things you can't keep. Mm-hmm. I think another approach that he's talked about is the fact that, um, you know, one could argue that for medical reasons, masturbation may be okay. And so if a boy never masturbates and it's going to create other significant problems, then yeah. maybe masturbating shouldn't be considered not okay ever. Um, you know, there are some sources that talk about, like, if it's choice between masturbating or having sex outside of marriage, you should masturbate, you know? So, yeah. so I think those are all approaches, Rebecca, that we all kind of need to address. And mm-hmm. You know, the the I'm actually amused. Yes, we have a an episode on female masturbation. Female masturbation wasn't addressed because nobody took it seriously, right? So, is that a good thing, Rebecca? Or is that a bad thing? I, I'd be so well, curious. It's, it's definitely a bad thing because I think like we don't we don't you know teach that it's healthy. And um, shout out to my mom for being very sex positive in my home. And it's only really now that I'm an adult that I feel very grateful to her for. Um, raising me in a home that was like way kind of like out there in terms of um, just positivity about our bodies. Like my mom was very into the book, Our Bodies Ourselves. And 
encouraged us to read it and like always had it out and everything like that. And she was always telling us that we should masturbate at a young age. And I remember being so embarrassed by her um, telling me to do that. But then now when I look back and I, you know, speak to friends about their attitudes and also just kind of get a sense of what people are thinking about these things. And there's so much mystery behind it. And I'm grateful that for me, that mystery was like, you know, and it, and you would think like, oh, if my mom was so open, like it's a bad thing. But I think we kind of need to reframe the question. Like, is it so bad? Whoa, 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 whoa. Why would you? Well, that's the most amazing story I've heard this week, Becca. You're making me smile. I'm dying to meet your mom. But why, why Why? would you say that? Why would you say my mom was so open? That's a bad thing. What, what because, would even make you say that? Because if we're trying to create an environment where we're trying to like refrain from sexuality, by totally not talking about it, it's it's probably going to be more effective, even if it leads to a negative outcome. Like if you never okay, talk about I, it in the house. I need to disabuse you of that before you go any further, Rebecca. Like okay. 100% it's not true. And that may be one of the most brilliantly problematic sort of myths that our community walks around with. Mm-hmm. So just so you have know this, every piece of data, every, and there have been tons and tons of studies about this. Every piece of data suggests that the more you talk about sex with your children, the later they become active, the less likely they are to make poor decisions, the more likely there is to be consent and consensual sex, and the less likely there are to be problems later on. Right. And I know that it's, it's so funny for me to hear you say that. I'm going to be honest. Like, I felt like I feel like it's my generation um, or even people in their 40s who have that crazy misconception, don't talk about it, and then they won't know about it, and that the people in your generation already get that, that you need to be talking about this in order to make it less mysterious, more practical, more understandable. And so it's fascinating that even you on some level, Rebecca, feel like the the goal would be not to talk. Now, I know you're not suggesting not talking about it, but that somehow like for firmer parents, if they don't talk about it, they'll be able to avoid sex with their kids. Like that's sort of what it sounds like. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I'm a Torah Jew and I really care about the Torah and I care about the culture, but I also just have recently realized like there are things that Judaism tells us that really either shouldn't be practiced or shouldn't be taken so seriously depending on the type of person that you are. Because I think with some, when we talk about something like sexual guilt, no one should have to experience that. People shouldn't have to experience what that feels like to be so uncomfortable with yourself sexually. And it could be due to the culture and the parenting and all this different stuff that creates that. But because Judaism says, no, you can't do this, you know, the sexual guilt is there. And so I don't know how that really relates back to my mom, but basically... Well- I guess all of that makes me think like, yes, as much as I really believe we should speak about these things openly, it's also hard because I don't think that things are really going to change. But all I can do is, you know, do it for my kids and do it for my friends' kids or, you know, like I'm, again, really grateful for my mom. Um, But there is a sense of like hiddenness and I don't know, there's a lot of privacy so the last episode on the Joy of Text, the last two episodes we did were about sex education and talking to your kids. And one of the things that Rabbi Linzer said um, was that when he hears from parents that somehow it's not sanua, it's not modest to be talking about sex, he he 
for all the reasons I just gave and for all the reasons you just articulated so well, Rebecca, um, there's, there's no excuse not to be talking to your kids about sex except mm-hmm. your own discomfort. And that's not a good enough reason, right? And, and, and that for a community that feels uncomfortable talking about sex, it's much easier, and this kind of goes back to what I said earlier, to use other things as a smokescreen for that, right? Yeah. So I'm not comfortable talking about sex. Therefore, I'm going to say, well, maybe it's not halachically okay to talk about sex. Yeah. Um, but sense. your mom was right and amazing. And um, you were really blessed and lucky to be the recipient of that. I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this podcast did not have that experience. Mm-hmm. But I will say, one thing I do want to say, Rebecca, is that I feel like guilt and shame, you see it more in religious communities and it's not just Jewish communities. It's also Mormon communities, fundamentalist, you know, evangelical Christian communities. You definitely see it more in the religious communities. But if I'm really honest with you, I see it in so many of my secular patients also, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's just something, um, there's something in the air, Rebecca, about, um, for girls and women in particular, that somehow feels like they are always stuck in this like um, slut. You're either a slut or you're frigid, right? You're not interested in sex or you're too interested in sex. Yeah. Um, and and it puts us in a really complicated dichotomy. And so to go back to your, you know, the question, which I said to you, do you think it's it's good that, you know, the sources didn't talk about female masturbation? In a way, it's really good because nobody can really make the argument that there's a halachic, serious halachic problem with women masturbating. You know, yeah. there's like very minor things, you know, not say Israel. Again, if people are more interested in going down that rabbit hole, you can listen to the, the female masturbation episode of the joy of text. But for the most part, if you meet up with women who are uncomfortable masturbating at this point, it's more because culturally, not halachically, um, we just don't, encourage girls to masturbate, you know? And, um, you know, I have a great way. I just want to tell you this a great story. I was once at, I think it was Westchester day school. It was one, it was in, it was definitely in Westchester. And this was years ago. Yeah, I love and that. I was speaking to high school. Yeah. I was, they put me with all the high school. So it's like nine through 12th grade. Okay. You know? So super high. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. And, um, and I was saying, you know, you need guys, you need to take a mirror. You need to look at your vulva. You need to look at your vaginas. You need to like know that part of your body. You need to touch yourself and know it feels good because how are you to somebody else and this one girl raises her hand and she says i love this line i use this line sometimes she says oh my god it sounds like you're telling us we should be masturbating and i said uh i am telling you you should be masturbating and she said oh you know like sometimes when the boys want to really give us a diss they say you're so you're so hard up you must masturbate and I just started laughing and I said, well, the next time a boy says that to you, you turn to them and you say, you should only get to be so lucky as to be with a girl who masturbates, mm. right? And um, because those are the girls and they're the women who know their body, know what feels good. You know, they know their body. They know what feels good. They feel empowered. Um, they can teach you what feels good. Those are the women who are going to have the better sex lives in the long run. So, um, 
you know, that is something we need to, we really need to address and teach. And that is not a big halachic problem, you know? So, you know, we have to look for the places where we're not bash, bashing up against the walls. And when we are bashing up against walls, we have to kind of find kind of our little ways around those walls. And you know what, in Aunt Rebecca, people kind of pick and choose, you know, every, I don't know anybody, unless they're obsessive compulsive, who follows halacha to the T a hundred percent. I just don't. Do you? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that like, I happen to have a very open mindset when it comes to halacha and like, it's hard. And I struggle with this too, like knowing that certain halacha are true, but also knowing that it doesn't work for you and coming to accept that. Like, I feel like that like friction is something that's part of why I love Judaism so much, but also why it makes it so hard. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess in terms of masturbation, would you say like for a woman at a certain age, say like we're talking about a typical woman didn't really explore so much in high school and, you know, maybe is more considering it in her twenties, would you encourage every young woman to buy a vibrator? And at what age would you say someone should get one? So I think girls should start masturbating when they're really young. And again, the fact that your mom was encouraging you, like, I'm telling you, I got to meet this woman. I love her. Anyway. I know, she was um, so funny. It um, would be funny. You could do another podcast. Bacheva meets your mom. Um, so um, I think women and girls should start masturbating from a young age. I'm a very big believer in trying to use your hand first before mm-hmm. you start with the vibrator. Um, not because I think there's anything better about your hand other than you can use it on Shabbos. So, um, <laughs> not Musa. You think that's funny, and I do too. And I've always thought I should work with Somat on a Shabbos friendly vibrator, but so far I haven't had time or energy to do that. Um, but I, I think, in general, being able to have an orgasm with your own hand is a really good way to go for lots of reasons, if that's possible. And then, if you first are having trouble for whatever reason, then you should go out and buy a vibrator. Nobody has ever asked me the age. And I'm just trying to think, like, I don't think there's an age limit. I think by 15 or 16, if you haven't had an orgasm with your own hand, I would say try getting a small vibrator and see how that works for you. Um, For sure, if you get your 20s and you think like every woman should really have one, like say you don't have one, should you get one? I don't think anybody should have anything like really and truly. I know that sounds very therapist of me. I don't, I really mean that. Like if you're somebody who orgasms really easily with your hand or your partner's mouth or your partner's penis, if your partner has a penis, um, then, and you don't feel a need for a vibrator, don't get a vibrator. Like, I feel like, I feel like vibrators are, look, I did my PhD thesis on vibrator use with women, right? So I'm, I'm very slanted on this one, right? But, and I think they're the most underused tool in a women's arsenal. And I think, for most women at some point in their life, it gets harder to have orgasms as you get older. And so for sure that vibrator should be an option. Okay. But I don't think everybody needs to have a, like, in other words, I don't feel like you, you're not like a woman if you don't have a vibrator. I, I think you should be able to have an orgasm. And if the best way for you to do that is with a vibrator, should, mm. do you, you know the statistics or you want me to give you the statistics on that? Yeah, I'm here for a statistic. Sure. Okay. So you want to guess how many, what percentage of women have an orgasm from the penile stimulation alone? Um, 40. 30, or actually 33%. In other words, one out of three out of 10 women will have an orgasm from intercourse alone, from penis in the vagina alone, which is written up in every magazine all the time. And yet somehow is stunningly shocking to people because we're such a penile, you know, 
centered society. It's yeah. ridiculous. Anyway, so the percentage of women that can have an orgasm from a hand or a mouth, you want to guess that or you want me to say? 75. Go you. So your mom would be proud. 70 to 80%. So 70 to 80% can have an orgasm from a hand or a mouth. That'd be your hand, your partner's hand, partner's mouth. It'd be hard to use your own mouth. So we're not going to try that. <laughs> um, and, um, and then the percentage that can have it with a vibrator. I don't know. Is it absurdly high? Is it like 95 or something? Exactly. 94%, give or okay. take 94%. I'm pretty so that, impressed by my guesses. <laughs> I am super impressed. I'm telling you, it all goes back to your mom. Anyway, so if you're in that group of women who can have an orgasm without a vibrator, like there's no reason that you want to have a vibrator, except you could have one just for fun. Yeah. Sometimes it makes it fast and easier. Right. So does that, does that kind of answer your vibrator question? It does. And I think also it opens up for a larger question that I'd like to speak from a Jewish lens of the importance of exploring yourself sexually. Like I know that we can point to the obligation that a husband pleasure his wife as opposed to like make babies together and procreate. And I think that like someone, a devil's advocate might ask like, well, what's, why do I need to pleasure myself? Like I should be focusing more on like Torah and things like that. And I don't know, maybe this is like a weird subconscious, you know, person sitting on my shoulder telling me this, but um, do you think that like having a vibrator has kind of like a, like a Gentile esque vibe to it? Um, I don't know. No, no, no. I think it's a great question, Rebecca, because I think we get, there's something about vibrators that make people a little queasy. Like they like get a little, like a little uncomfortable. Like I feel like some people, it's like a little much for them. You know, I, you know, I use this line all the time. Vibrators are not kinky sex toys. They're your friend. But I mm -hmm. think that that's, people think of them as kind of kinky sex toys. Right. Um, but so I would say to you, I like to think about sex and halacha like food and halacha, right? You know, we make beautiful, amazing food for Shabbos. Like we, we spend a lot of money on expensive wine, right? Like we don't say that just because something's unusual or different in the food variety, it's somehow, you know, Guyish, do you know what I mean? Like, so, um, I, I that's kind of how I like making sex better. Like, that's that's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. Especially, and here I'm going to say to you, this is really where I, this is like, this is from the depth of my soul. I talk about sex because I think it is the glue that holds together long term relationships. I believe mm -hmm. that in my soul of souls, and I feel like it's much more complicated than people think. And if we as a community believe in long-term monogamous relationships, which we do as a community for the most part, yeah. then we damn well better be addressing our sex lives and understanding that your sex life is not static. It doesn't just start and then go on forever. It's constantly changing. There's yeah. always road bumps and, um, and we want to make it better. And if a vibrator is going to make it better or reading erotica is going to make it better or role-playing is going to make it better or fantasizing is going to be, make it better or testosterone is going to make it better. We should be doing all that. And that is, that is God's work. You know, yeah. I, yeah, I really believe I'm doing God's work. I am. And my vibrators are doing God's work too. So I get where you're coming from, Rebecca. There is something that feels sort of pressed. I guess that would be the word I would grow, had grown up with that feels like, you know, nice girls don't do that. Yes. You know what? Nice girls do do that within the context of a relationship. And that is really important.
Yeah. And especially like, I just think about Judaism's emphasis on family and like you said, monogamy and especially long-term monogamy. I think sex life is an important part of maintaining like a positive marriage, right? So if anything, we should be focusing, you know, just as much on that as we are on our nice wine for Shabbat. I really like that food halacha ad, uh, analogy. Good. I'll compare anything to sex. So I'm going to move away a little bit from vibrators and ask you this question about sexual guilt. Um, how would you suggest dealing with this both on the personal level and on a communal level? So that is like the $6 million question, Rebecca. Um, so guilt and shame, I think, live in dark recesses of unspoken places. Like I feel like for most people, Guilt and shame live where things can't be talked about and things can't be brought out to light of day to see them. And so by far, the most effective way to banish shame or guilt is to talk about it. And um, that may be with your friend, that may be with your partner, that may be with your therapist. Um, it's just expo and listen also, listen to podcasts. Like what you're doing now, Rebecca, is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, because the reality is that we all live with some levels of shame and guilt. And what's, what is so sort of, um, so painful to me is the, the reality of how like unnecessary that is. Like if you feel guilty, cause let's, you know, you feel guilty because you did something with somebody when you were 16 that you now still feel guilty about. And you start talking about it, all of a sudden you start realizing, oh my God, so did a million other people. The world didn't end. Do you know what I mean? My life went on. That person's life went on. Um, and I'm not a bad person. Or or if you feel guilty about your fantasies, which I feel all the time, you know, women have or women, you know, who are in relationships who are fantasizing about somebody else and they feel horrible guilt. And then they start talking about it. And I'm like, you know what? Welcome to being a person, you know, that everybody, that's like everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I, I have this one story about this woman, which I haven't thought about her in a long time, who came to see me and she, she was having an, I, 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 you know, I'm very good at getting people's history at this point. And it took probably 40 minutes, literally 40 minutes until she basically spilled her big secret which you, you would have thought she murdered somebody by the way she was holding on to the guilt and shame about the secret. And it turned out that the only way she could have an orgasm was by chinning up on a door jam. So like, in other words, she would pull herself up on the door and as she was pulling herself up, she would have an orgasm. And somehow she felt so like there was something so wrong with her. She was so embarrassed and shamed and like, just getting it out on the table. She hadn't told her therapist of two years. She hadn't told her husband of 25 years. And I'm looking at her as she's telling me this. And my reaction was, yeah, like I, I could, you know, I was like, you know, a lot of girls learn how to have orgasm first time by like pulling themselves up on ropes in gym class. Like that is not unusual. I, I'll just never remember, forget that look on her face of like, oh my God, like she's been carrying this shameful secret for years. And like, you know, then it was just a matter of us unpacking it and, you know, figuring out how she could talk to her husband about it, how she could talk to her therapist about it, which 
of course she was like, no way, there's no way. But of course, within two weeks, she was totally talking about it. Like, and all of that shame was off her shoulders. And it was, when you think about it, like, why are we ashamed of our normal, normal reaction? So the easiest, I wouldn't say easy because easy is, you know, making it, you know, that's not fair. That's trivializing it. But the most direct route is to sort of get up the courage to try to talk to somebody about it. Talk If you can't talk to a friend about it, talk to a professional about it. Mm-hmm. Because once these secrets are out in the open, they all of a sudden they just look so, you know, it's like it's so much like the shadow in the dark room. And then you turn on the light and it's your coat rack, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure this woman is so grateful to you for um helping her in that regard and making her realize that like everyone has these thoughts and these feelings regardless of how the world perceive like expects certain things. And I mean, I think especially in the Jewish world, there are just a lot more issues because it's, you know, it's like a religious, but it's interesting that you mentioned that you see the issues of sexual guilt for women coming from all different worlds. That just means to say it's definitely something that's part of human nature. Right. That woman I just described to you now wasn't religious in any way. She she wasn't Jewish, but she wasn't religious at all. So definitely that means, you know, everybody has a struggle in their own way in this regard. Yep. I wanted to go back to Shormanagia and I have sort of like slowly built this belief that Shormanagia made sense for the Talmudic times when people were getting married at a younger age, but that we sort of have applied to it to mean like before marriage, but if you're getting married at a later time, um, you know, how are we supposed to go about following that? I think we touched upon that a little bit, but um, I think that it's important to recognize that, you know, for the recent episode of Joy Text, and we've talked about the gradations and how we should like teach more about the gradations that it's not like all or nothing with Shomanagia. Would you talk more about that? Yes. And once more, I get to fall back on my privilege as the sex therapist here and not the halachic authority, because I am not a halachic authority and I do not make halachic rulings for anybody ever. Yeah. Uh, so as a sex therapist, I will tell you that I am very concerned often about relationships where there's been no physical contact before they get married. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it worries me. It's not to say that it's not doable. And I, and I have seen people who have been perfectly great marriages with great sex lives who did not touch each other before they were married. However, I think it's really a problem. And here's why. I think it's very hard to tell if you're attracted to somebody without any physical contact. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have intercourse with the person or that you even have to have oral sex or you have to have anything that intense with somebody. But I feel like it's very difficult to know whether or not you actually physically like the way that person feels and smells and tastes and the way they kiss. Um, You need to have some physical attraction to somebody in order to make it work. And now that's not to say you could get married and have the physical attraction, but there's a possibility. And that's where I see sort of the the heart-wrenching ones where people get married and their partner turns out to be gay um, or asexual um, or they really just can't stand the essence of how that person smells and tastes. Um, so th- that worries me. You know, that really, really yeah. worries me. And um, and so when somebody got up in a medical school class that I was speaking to and said, well, do you believe that in a marriage, if two people want to make it work, they can always make it work? You know, I get stuck on that. I can say most cases, I think that that's true. 
Yeah. But I also think there is such a thing as being sexually incompatible. And I can't give you statistics or numbers on that, Rebecca. I wish I could. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think there's such a thing. And if you've had no physical contact, it worries me. So now, does that mean, again, understanding that there's gradations of what you may or may want to not to do before you're married? And also understanding that, you know, life involves risk. And if for whatever reason, halacha is so important to you in terms of not touching, then there's a certain level of risk involved. And sometimes you can mitigate that by lots of conversation and sitting very close. I know some couples where she starts to go to the mikvah before, you know, while they're dating because they don't want to have those halachic issues. So I think, Rebecca, people kind of have to find their own solutions. Yeah. Um, I will say to you, if you're dating and you're the person you are with is 100% comfortable not touching you, that would set off red flags. Now, if the person isn't comfortable with it, but you know, the two of you are trying to figure out solutions alone and you decide not to touch each other, that's very different. But I have seen so many cases where couples come in where the woman or the man, but it's often I see the women more who are like, Oh, I'm just not interested. You know, I'm very, very careful about, you know, Shmirat and and I'm not going to be touching you, but everything will be fine once we're married. But they're not interested in sex. They're not interested in sex. They're not attracted to the person, maybe not interested in men. Um, and you, that's a problem because once you're married and you get into that situation, I, my heart breaks for the partners of these people, right? So, um, yeah. you know, um, it's a complicated issue, Rebecca. It's not straightforward. And the, Example you sort of just mentioned goes back to what you were saying about religion being used as a smokescreen um, to talk about larger yes. issues. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that kind of concludes our conversation in terms of those topics, but I want to move forward and discuss like the future, God willing, I hope to be a mother someday and teach my kids about a healthy sexuality, but also in a halachic framework. So um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about comprehensive education versus value-based education, which you mentioned on the Joy of Text podcast, or other tips that you have just for the future. Yeah. So that's so tricky, Rebecca, because I could literally, I did, and I could, I just, we did two episodes on the Joy of Text, right? An hour and a half. I could easily, you know, talk an hour and a half. So to do something in two minutes is tricky. And also it sounds like you should have your mother on to do this, to be right. honest. Well, so um, talk uh, and say like, if we want to go into any other topic specifically, um, just for like two more minutes or sort of to finish it off, like we don't have to open up this topic. Yeah, no, no, I'll, 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 give you the highlights. I will totally okay. give you the highlights. Um, so I, you know, as I said, I could speak about this for an hour and a half, but if we only have a few more minutes, I would say it's not that different from many of the other things I've been talking about. Um, I'm a big talker. You can tell that. Like you need to talk to your kids. You need to start with them when they're really young. You need to buy books. There are amazing books out there for parents. Um, and there are amazing books out for parents and kids. And um, you should start when the kids are really little. And exactly like what you described, Rebecca, you're going to talk to your kids and they're going to seem embarrassed and like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. And they're going to put their fingers up to their ears and say, la, 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 I'm not listening or however, whatever. Mm -hmm. They will hear everything you say. And you, you need to do it. You need to do it at home, not in the schools. The schools should be doing sex education, but you are the only one who could pass along your values to your kids. So you need to give them information, but that's your opportunity to talk about it. And it's fine to say, 
listen, I'm going to talk to you all about intercourse and I'm going to show you all about um, 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 contraception because I want you to stay safe and I want you to you know, know exactly what's going on. But if, if you're asking me, I feel like I don't want you to have sex with anybody until you're 18 or until you're engaged or until you're married. Whatever value you want, you have a right to express that to your child, yeah. but at the same time, give them all the accurate information they need and not worry that by giving them the accurate information, you're going to make them act on it sooner because the data shows the opposite. Would you say you strongly like believe that people are more nurture-based or nature-based? Oh my God, Rebecca. Um, because I, I, would say, I think in the nature more because you've been keep been saying like, oh, they'll find it or like it'll work out, but it yeah. just sounds like that I, to me. So I do. I feel like there's a nature, there's a huge nature component, huge. And then how one nurtures that nature component makes all the difference. Yes. I never, nobody's ever made me articulate that before, Rebecca. So I really appreciate that. But I feel like we are born, I was born with a lot of interest in sex. Yes. It was totally mishandled by my parents. It could have been handled totally differently from my parents. And then I would have ended up in a different place, I think. Um, probably wouldn't have been talking about sex because I wouldn't have been obsessed with teaching other people about sex. Yeah. Um, but, but, but in yeah, fact, so, you're doing a great service to the community. Great. And- so, you know what? Even parents who do terrible jobs end up with, you know, good results. <laughs> and that is an important thing for people to remember as they head into parenting. Yeah, absolutely. And anyways, thank you so much, Batsheva, for joining us for this episode. Um, I'm just so grateful that you took time for this. And I'm really in awe of everything that you shared and the way that you articulate yourself. So consider yourself a role model for me personally. And I hope that all my listeners enjoyed this episode as well. I am so um, glad and I, it was totally fun. Rebecca, you asked great questions and I hope, you know, you should have me back like in March when my book comes out because I feel like every woman should own this book. Um, I'm very excited all, to hear more about. about It's all about reclaiming your sex life and understanding your, your sexuality and figuring mm-hmm. out the best way to make your sex life work for you. So I, I'll be back. Yeah. And Bacheva, how can we find you on Instagram? What's your handle? So it's Dr. Bacheva, Dr. Bacheva, mm-hmm. and um, I would have said you could find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, but Twitter threw me off. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Which is like hysterical, but it is true. So um, anyway, yes, you can find me at Dr. Bacheva, Dr. Bacheva. Okay, well, thank you so much, and yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>